Hi, this is your host, Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is an Army veteran who served in Vietnam. A year into his service, he stepped on a landmine and immediately lost both of his legs and an arm. He survived and went on to achieve success as a father, a business owner, and as a national commander of DAV. I would like to welcome Jim Sersley. Jim, thank you for serving, and how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Pete, and thank you very much for having me. It's my honor. So, Jim, I really do appreciate you coming on today to tell us about what you've been through and how you survived. I'm really grateful for how you now take that suffering and experience and use it to help other veterans to survive as well. First, though, I really wanted to start by getting to know you a little bit and talking about the time when you decided you first wanted to join the Army to actually joining the Army. And then what did you do in the Army? What was your job that you were trained to do? Well, it's kind of interesting as to how I joined the Army, because in 1966, I graduated from high school in May of 1966, but all during that year, fellow students, friends on the football team, all kinds of different associates were talking about joining the Marine Corps, let's join on the buddy system, let's join the Army, let's go in the Air Force. I didn't want to have anything to do with any of that stuff. I mean, it just didn't make sense to me at all. I had better plans. There were girls still running around the neighborhood that looked like it'd be more fun than joining the Army. So they all went in the military. I kind of survived until like September of that year, three months after I graduated. And I was driving by the post office where the Army recruiter was, and there was a sign out front that said, Uncle Sam needs you, where he was pointing a finger right straight at the car I was driving. So I circled the block and went in and talked to the Army recruiter just to sort of get an idea of, hey, what's available? What's this program all about? So I did that and kind of got an idea from him. And I went home and told my parents I was thinking about doing that. I was already 18 years old, so I didn't need parental permission or anything to join. So I kind of thought about it for two or three weeks, I guess. And then I went back and right around the 1st of October, I actually signed up and joined the Army. That's interesting. You know, when you mentioned the buddy program, that's actually what got me in in the first place is that I had a buddy that wanted to do it. I had really had no desire to do it, kind of like you. And my buddy's like, hey, well, let's go in on the buddy program. And I told my dad, I was only 17. And my dad was like, he couldn't sign that paper fast enough. He was like, all right, he's going to get out there and do something with his life. So he signed it. And then we went to where they check you out and give you the physical and do all that kind of stuff. My best friend, my buddy had flat feet and they wouldn't take him. So I ended up going by myself. So that was my journey starting off in the military. It's kind of crazy how we all get started in one way or another, even though we don't necessarily think that that's what we want to do, but then we end up serving. So you joined the army, you got in, and then what kind of training did they send it to you after boot camp? I actually joined the military, took the oath, I guess, if that's what you call it, on December 10th of 1966, went to basic training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and then also did AIT at Fort Polk, Louisiana, because I joined to do a contract as a wheeled vehicle mechanic. 
So that's the school that I had at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Always enjoyed working on cars as a teenager back home. They saw that I had certain mechanical skills and decided they'd send me on to an advanced school, which was called Track Vehicle Repair at Fort Sale, Oklahoma. And after completing that, my first permanent duty station was with the 24th Infantry Division at Battalion Maintenance in Augsburg, Germany. So I got over there in like July or early August of 1967. You know, my dad actually was a motor T guy too. So something in common there. He was in the Marines though. And he ended up being a mechanic after that. I think he kind of loved working on cars. I don't know how much you liked it when they decided to put you in that particular job. But I did see that after you went to Germany, you didn't really care for it so much. And that's interesting because so many people love to go to Germany. And that's all I talk about is, wow, how awesome Germany is. But you actually volunteered to go to Vietnam. So tell me about that. Well, and I didn't dislike Germany. What's interesting about that is I felt like I had a civilian occupation with green clothes on. And I just never really got the feeling that that's what I signed up for or that that's what I thought the Army really was. So I was a little bit disappointed. I don't think I was cut out to be a garrison soldier. So I volunteered to go to Vietnam. I had a first sergeant over there in Germany that said, hey, a lot of bad things are going on in Vietnam. You might want to think about that. Talk to some of the other guys in our battalion that had already been to Vietnam and come back and see what they have to say. Then come back and talk to me a little bit later and see if you still feel that same way. Well, I did that. And of course, the thing that's significant there is they all came back in good shape because they were still active duty military. So it wasn't like they had any real horrible stories to tell or any injuries that would make you think that everybody was getting hurt in Vietnam. So I just continued with my feelings of wanting to go. And I told the first sergeant, I'm ready. And he put in the orders. I guess I went home right in late January of 1968, did 30 days at home and reported to Fort Lewis, Washington on my way to Vietnam on March the 1st, 1968. Wow. And so basically you went over there at what was right around the beginning of the Tet Offensive, correct? That's correct. Exciting. Yeah, I bet it was really crazy. And I've heard plenty of other people talk about it. And the president of American Heroes Network was also in Vietnam during that exact time and has a purple heart and everything. So he was there, he felt it, and he has talked about it many times. And it sounds just horrific, the things that different people had to go through. And then you obviously have a first-hand knowledge of how things can go wrong. And so I guess that's kind of what happened to you next. It's like basically you'd been there for a certain amount of time, and then you ended up running into that landmine that I mentioned at the very beginning. So tell me about how all that happened and what you went through. Well, and I'd actually been in country almost 10 and a half months before that actually happened. And interestingly, the way that worked when I got to Vietnam was I reported to the first sergeant. I told him who I was, that I was a mechanic. And if he'd point me in the direction of the motor pool, I'd go down and report to the motor sergeant. I'd go to work. And the first sergeant called everybody son. And he said, son, we don't really have a motor pool over here. He said, you'll be a machine gunner with the third platoon on an armored personnel carrier. But I will give you a toolbox. And if anything goes wrong with those vehicles, I want you to fix it. So that's the way my time started shortly after I got in country and with a 17th Armored Cav. Now, 10 and a half months later, I'd been through becoming a track commander and an E5. 
Six months later, I became a Staff Sergeant E6 with 22 months in the Army, and I became the field first sergeant for the company commander on the command track. And then on January 11th, 1969, we were out in our area of operation. One of the things that I always did, even back when I was in the platoon, was go out and check the perimeter to make sure that all of our vehicles that were out on the perimeter had the claymores out, had all their nighttime defense things in position. And while doing that is where I stepped on an enemy landmine. Estimated to be about 20 pounds of TNT, went up in a gigantic ball of flame and traumatically blew off both of my legs and my left arm. And the interesting thing about the actual explosion itself was there was no shrapnel involved and it was just a bag of high explosive powder. And it went up in a gigantic ball of flame and cauterized most of my arteries that kept me from bleeding to death. So it made it a much easier thing for the medics to come and stabilize me and get me on a dust-off helicopter, send me to the 95th 50 back hospital in Da Nang. And so when that happened to you, you were actually out after that. And it was like 30 days later when you really kind of realized what happened, right? Well, I was conscious from the time the explosion went off, probably went into some kind of shock when I was on the dust off helicopter, was conscious a little bit during the three days I was at the 9050 back. And then when I went to the 106 General Hospital in Yokohama, Japan, and they realized that it was going to be much better to do all my major surgery in Japan than to try to do part of it and send me to the States. I'm sure I was like in a medically induced coma while they went through surgery, recovery, surgery, recovery, till they got everything taken care of. I think it was like around the 15th or 16th of February when they actually let me regain full consciousness and started feeding me regular food so that I could build up some strength and stamina to make the flight back across the Pacific to the United States. Yeah, I saw pictures and it looked like you absolutely lost a ton of weight and you were really super skinny. And that was actually a picture when I'd gotten to Fitzsimmons General Hospital in Aurora, Colorado, which was my last stop. I kind of got some weird infection or weird sickness. So I think they figured I lost another 15 or 20 pounds just in the hospital trying to overcome whatever problem I was going through. I think they estimated from that one picture that I weighed about 95 pounds, and they started out at just a little less than six foot three, 217 before I stepped on the landmine. Wow. You know, Jim, one of the things about transition from the military, even for just the regular guy or girl, is that getting out and leaving the camaraderie, you know, the team, going into a new world that they've not faced before because some people they like joined when they're 17 or 18. So they never really were in a corporate world or anything like that. And so transition's hard for everybody, but that multiplied obviously many times with you because of the other things that you had to deal with that most people don't. And so your transition was unexpected. Then you went back home and how long did it take you to sort of feel able to really start doing things and trying to want to participate in life, in group environments with people and family and stuff like that? Because this is one of the things that we want to bring out of this is for all those people that come home for whatever reason, you know, how big or how small they're struggling, but how do you deal with that? And you came out of it on the positive side when you accomplish things 
and you had it tougher than a lot of people. So about that transition and the hard time when you first get there, how do you feel about it? And what did you go through and what kind of advice could you give to others about that? Well, I think one of the interesting things is when I was at the hospital, everything is wheelchair accessible. Everything is designed for your medical comfort and your transition and that type of thing. And basically everybody else that's around you is pretty much in that same situation. Fitzsimmons and Walter Reed were the two major centers where there was multiple amputees all over the place as a result of landmine explosions in Vietnam. So you were amongst other people who looked and acted just like you did. It made it easy to thrive in that environment. Now comes the time in late November of 1969 when it's time to go home to Rochester, Minnesota. And even though I've only been gone for about three years, I still know a lot of people there. But the biggest thing is the Americas with Disability Act had not been enforced yet. Rochester, Minnesota was an older type of town. And so there was no wheelchair accessibility to anything. Restaurants didn't have wheelchair bathrooms. There was not curb cuts to get from one side of the street to the other. So that was extremely difficult to adjust physically to the way you were going to be able to get around. Now, not being able to get around makes it difficult even if you want to get out and engage the public because it's hard to get there to do that. So it usually required somebody being with me. I never had any difficulty wanting to step out and engage the public and be around people. The biggest thing is people don't always want to be around you. And it's not a matter that they don't appreciate what you did or your service to the country. It's that they're afraid if they do engage you, they might say something wrong. And that still happens today, but certainly not to as great an extent as it did back in the late 1960s or during the early 1970s, because you truly did not see people in a wheelchair out anywhere in public. Most of them were just somewhere else. They didn't go to school. They didn't go to college. I don't know where they were, but they weren't out there doing what I was doing. And you even took it a step further, really. I mean, you're talking about how hard it is to get around and even have somebody with you and stuff like that. But regardless, obviously, you didn't let it keep you down because you decided that you were going to go to college. And so you did that. I mean, you made it possible. You made it happen. How did that go? You know, similar kind of situation. One of the best things about that was because of Vietnam, there were vet clubs in all the colleges that I ever attended. And there was a lot of people in huge numbers who were veterans that had served or served in Vietnam. So again, we were kind of back to that camaraderie of fellow veterans, you know, that we could kind of lean on if we needed something. And in some cases, to get from one location to another with the wheelchair, somebody else that was in the class would give me a push. Maybe I'd carry their books, you know, something like that. I wanted to be there, and I think they wanted me to be there. We all were kind of in the same boat together, so we just helped each other out. I probably just required a little more help than a lot of them. Now, you know, you talk about being in a wheelchair and how difficult that can be, especially with curb cuts and everything like that. Did you always have a motorized one that helped you get around everywhere you needed to go? I always used a manual wheelchair that you push with what's called a one-arm drive. There's two rings on the right-hand side that attach to an axle on the left, 
and you push both rings at the same time and you go straight. So it took a little practice to figure that one out, but I've only used the motorized chair now, I'd say 90% of the time for probably the last two years. So from 21 years of age to 70 years of age, I used a manual chair. I see now being in the situation of being a triple amputee, I wouldn't have realized that that would have been the case. So you must have one seriously strong arm on the one side, huh? (laughs) Well, I'm now experiencing at 72 years of age, what happens when you push the chair for 50 years with one arm, you know, it's taken its toll on my uh, rotator cuff and I probably have bone on bone in that shoulder joint that we're going to be dealing with here shortly. I am certainly glad they got you the motorized chair then. (laughs) What can you get that thing up to anyway? Oh gosh, it probably rolls about five miles an hour. It's faster than most people walk. Well, that's kind of cool. And uh, I've seen you out there all camoed up in it too. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So I thought that was very cool. So after attending college and everything, I guess at some point you decided that really wasn't for you. And I know that you kind of stopped attending college. I don't really know if you want to give any more detail on that. But the part that excites me the most is that after that, you decided to move to Florida. Guess what? I'm in Florida too. We're neighbors somehow. (laughs) Where do you live? I'm right above Tampa in Newport Ritchie. You know where that is? Ah, Absolutely. We have a DAV chapter in Newport Ritchie and a lot of other members in the Tampa area as well, too. Ah, see, that's very cool. I'm going to have to try to meet some of those people. And I don't know how often you travel around, but I do know you do go to do things. But either I'm going to have to get up to where you are or catch you when you're over on this side of the coast. Sure. But to answer your question, Pete, what I did is I went to school for about a year at Rochester State Junior College in Rochester, Minnesota, was asked to take a job in Florida by a gentleman that I had met in just some of the things I was involved in. So I think it was in uh, March of 1971 that my wife and I left Minnesota, moved to Florida, and I went back to school there at Seminole Community College and achieved my AA degree and still continue to work and stuff at the same time. The work I went to Florida to do lasted a couple of years. Went to University of Central Florida, which was called Florida Technological University at the time here in Orlando, and then went and got a real estate license. And from 1978 until today, which I'm still an active real estate agent and work the business quite often, I've got 41 or 42 years in the real estate business as well. And now, hey, don't be modest. Don't forget to mention that you're like one of the top active sellers of homes in the Apaca community, right? Well, uh, I am. And I think part of that is credited to longevity. But I certainly did a lot of very, very aggressive real estate sales for probably the first 20 years I was in the business. And I probably have existed off my accolades from some of those days for the last 21 years. So You know, it's kind of a nice business, the referral business of selling to somebody back in 1978. I'm now selling to their grandchildren today. And it's exciting for the grandkids to go, you knew my grandmother and grandfather. So I guess when that happens, I've been around for a long time. (laughs) You know, so the interesting part is, I mean, you've been doing it so long and you obviously enjoy it. Is this something that you can just keep doing, you know, as long as possible? Or are you actually planning on retiring at some point? Um, I have no intentions of ever retiring. I really enjoy 
engaging the public, the work and the activity and the challenge of all of it is pretty exciting. Jim, you know, you mentioned being married, and that is something that I think that's really important to talk about because sometimes people that go through things, they're injured, they lose something, they feel like I'm not as worth as much as I was before when I was whole. And there's some people who they can't take it. There's people that commit suicide and there's people that could be thinking about that right now. But you've showed them, you know, you showed them that, hey, I've got married and you've had children and you have grandchildren. So please talk about that and talk about how it doesn't matter who you are, but you're still capable of finding love and having a family and what you were able to accomplish. And I think a lot of that, Pete, has to do with the fact that I never, ever really started thinking like a triple amputee, if that makes sense. I didn't view myself really any different than I did before my injuries. Now, I mean, I'm honest enough with myself to know that I'm missing two legs and an arm, but I wasn't going to let that get in the way of me enjoying life and getting total fulfillment out of life in any way I could possibly do that. And sometimes it wasn't easy to do that as a triple amputee. But, you know, the struggles that we all go through in life are part of life's challenges that make it even more rewarding. So I accepted the struggle. I was ready to move forward. I just went out there and kind of did my thing. And I think that's the way you meet other people who are happy to engage you in conversation. And that's exactly what I did with women. And obviously, it turned into someone that fell in love with me, and I fell in love with them. And we eventually got married and ended up having two sons as a result of that marriage. So I think that's always possible for anybody that has any injuries, any disfigurement. People, you know, they're looking for someone with heart and with feeling and a zest for life. And I think if you can display that, there's somebody out there for everyone. So you said you lived like you weren't an amputee. So it sounds like that you just carried on and you were the same as far as the person that you are, despite your disability. And I'm just seeing you as, I don't know, chasing girls in the wheelchair. Were you doing that? I was. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I mean, again, Pete, that's a perfect example of if someone didn't like me, I wasn't going to take that as total rejection because I was missing two legs and an arm. I was going to just take that as I just wasn't her type. Doesn't that happen every day with all of us? Absolutely. So it doesn't make any difference if you got legs or you don't have legs. And in my case, I mean, I've been blessed and I'd only have that first wife that we raised two sons with, but that marriage lasted about 10 years. Her and I actually have gotten along much better when we weren't married than we did when we were, for whatever reason. And I've been married again now for 35 years and have another son and a daughter in kind of very much the same way. I think the fact that I would talk to her in a place of employment where she was and she would talk back to me just kind of got everything started. If I maybe wouldn't have engaged that conversation to start with, I'm not sure women have the courage to go up and say something for fear they might say something wrong. Now, that isn't true universally, but in a lot of cases, that's what happens. Part of any relationship 
in life is a 50-50 deal. I got to meet you halfway. The difference is when you're in a wheelchair missing two legs and an arm, you probably have to go 70% of the way and they have to meet you 30% of the way. And it's because they're just reluctant to engage you or say hi or say, how are you doing? Because they have a fear of they might say something wrong that would embarrass them and embarrass you. So I usually say hello to people who don't even know who in the world I am. I smile at people and say hi when I go through the airport. That's just who Jim Sturzley is. But I found from the very beginning, if I'm willing to do that, the world outside my door is willing to accept me 100% if they know that I'm that kind of a person. That's so important what you said. And I think that for those that could be sitting at home right now and not really want to engage and they're feeling like maybe they don't want to deal with people not knowing what to say to them, your advice is great. They're just as afraid as you are trying to get out there and start everything. And if you don't come and meet them halfway, it's never going to happen at all. So the advice is to just get out there and talk to people and act natural. You be yourself, let yourself come out who you are. People are funny. They tell jokes. And if that's you, then just do it and be normal and let things happen as they will. And you being married twice and having the four kids and all these grandchildren, it's just amazing. So that's something that you've done and that you have shown so that others can see that it is possible. There's really no limit to what you can do, right, Jim? That's absolutely correct. I mean, I can't think of anything in my 51 years since my injury that I've wanted to do that we haven't been able to figure out. I mean, you might have to go around in a different fashion, structure things differently to make it happen. But anything that I've wanted to do, I've had the opportunity to try that. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, maybe it wasn't for me, but you have to be willing to step out there and get involved and make something happen. It's your responsibility to make that first move. And I like what you just said. Everything that you've gone out to try to do, you've been able to do. So obviously it looks like you look for opportunity to do things. I saw one picture of you swinging a golf club. And I think the thing that I liked the most that I said I was going to talk about was you riding around on your wheelchair. Everything's all camoed out. You're all in camo. You like to hunt, don't you? I do. <laughs> so you got to share that with us. Tell us how you go hunting and what you do and what you use and how successful are you at it? Are you a good shot? I've been struggling a little bit lately, but I know what my problem is. It's a little bit different method I'm going to have to use to pull the trigger, but I've harvested a lot of turkeys. I'm a wild turkey hunter. I deer hunt. I elk hunt. I bear hunted in British Columbia. And if all the cards are aligned correctly, I'll be doing a moose hunt in Alaska next September and deep sea fishing here off the east coast of Florida. It's just something that I enjoy. It's not that difficult to do it when you get from here to where you're hunting. And the last one I had was up near Cordial, Georgia. I drive a vehicle of my own, you know, with hand controls. I can get in and out of it, transition into a wheelchair. I transfer into that camouflage chair that you saw in the picture or the article in the DAV magazine. And again, just take that, that got about a five mile range to it. Go wherever you need to go, get yourself in a ground blind, 
hide yourself behind some bushes and just get ready for the deer to come out and see something you like and pull the trigger and you harvest a nice deer. Not that difficult. So see, it sounds like really you're an outdoor person. And a lot of people might think that, well, if you're stuck in a wheelchair, that that's not possible. And this is another great thing for people to know. You start in a hospital, you get in a wheelchair, they try and give you as much therapy as they can physically and mentally to prepare you for the road ahead. And you took life by the horns and you go do what you want to do and you get outside and every single person, whether they're injured or not, is capable of getting out and doing these things. So I think it's critically important not to stay inside and feel gloomy, but to get outside, get the sun, feel good, go to the beach, go hunting like you do, participate in things like golf and group activities with friends. You can do it. You can be happy. I think when you get involved in things and when you get involved with people, that it actually takes your mind off of things. And sometimes you might not even think about all of the things that you've had to deal with because you can forget them for a moment here and there. And you know, in 2020, where we're at right now, there's more and more opportunities all the time for those of us that are in wheelchairs or have some other form of a disability. So there's absolutely no reason or no excuse for somebody who wants to do that to not jump out there and seize that opportunity to do it. One of the other things that I've found, Pete, probably is more significant than even harvesting the deer and bringing home and eating it is the people that I hunt with and the enjoyment we share amongst one another is even more incredible than the hunt itself. Sometimes there's other disabled veterans. Sometimes there's just regular able-bodied people. Doesn't make any difference. We're all there to have a good time and enjoy one another. And that's exactly what we do. So Jim, you know, one thing that you mentioned, talking about the grandchildren, you have a lot of them, don't you? I have 12 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. Wow. See, that's amazing. What I really love about it is that with all of these grandchildren and and now great-grandchildren growing up around you, and they get to experience that, and they get to learn and they actually are going to get to grow up with a little bit of a better compassion than some other people who are not so understanding. And then when you think about those grandchildren and children and great-grandchildren growing up and then going out and spreading that knowledge around to other people, I just think it really makes the world a better place, you know, when people are more compassionate and more caring and more understanding. And so a lot of that is going to start with you, them getting to be with you and be around you and get to learn and children ask questions and you get to explain and that's where the understanding comes in. So to me, that's kind of a touching thing. And I don't know if you ever think about it, but you're sharing that knowledge with them that they're going to share with so many other people when they grow up. You know, as I watch them and I don't see all of them all the time, but they certainly never shy away from someone that's either walking with crutches or in a wheelchair, whether it be male or female or old or young, it doesn't make any difference. They're so accustomed to being around the chair that there's no shock or no surprise to it when they engage other people in a wheelchair. So I don't go out of my way to make them comfortable. They just live around me and it just becomes a part of our everyday life. Yeah. And the thing about little kids, it's always guaranteed is they don't have a filter. You know, they just say whatever is on their mind, whatever they think, whatever's in front of them, they just say it. It just makes me think that all the kids and great grandkids, 
being used to being in that situation like you just described, like they're used to it because that's what they always see, is going to make them probably a little more compassionate with their words when they grow up because it's just funny how kids are and what they say. So I don't know if you've ever experienced any really strange things. Well, what was it? Art Linklater used to say that kids say the darndest things. I find that younger kids on up to about the age of 13 or 14, maybe that gets a little younger all the time. They just say anything. When they get to be 15 or 16, you get, oh, you get worried about what you're going to say. Then when you get to be about 60 years old, you go back that same way. You'll say anything anymore. It doesn't matter. You've already lived enough a life that doesn't make any difference what you say and, and who hears it. So I used to feel bad when I go to the grocery store with my wife because little kids would get in trouble. They'd see me and they'd say, Mommy, that guy doesn't have any legs. And of course, the mother would be embarrassed. Well, I'd turn around and go the other aisle so I would have to meet him face head on. And I would say, did your son or your daughter have some questions they'd like to ask me? I mean, I don't mind answering that. And I know the mother just wanted to save herself the embarrassment. The kid was just curious. So I might spend two minutes or five minutes or six minutes, whatever it would take, to answer all the questions that little boy or girl would have. And I mean, it made me proud to be able to do that. And I was happy that they had the concern to ask. So it's kind of a neat thing. You can use it to your own benefit, but at the same time, you're benefiting and understanding on the part of both the mother and the little kid. So you're sharing knowledge and educating strangers as well, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a good thing, Jim. I got to be proud of you for that. You know, you're not afraid to talk to anybody. Yeah, they got to understand. There's a lot of things in life that happen. And, you know, I think it's good for people to understand that, hey, just because something happened doesn't mean that you can't be cool or get out there or do something like hunting like you do. It's pretty amazing. So, hey, now what I want to talk to you about, Jim, is actually the DAV. You joined the DAV quite a long time ago, but after being in the DAV, I guess you worked your way up and you became the national commander. I'd really like to hear about that. Well, and that's a kind of a lengthy process to do that, but I started out doing things on what we call the local chapter level right here in central Florida. Again, moved on to what we call the department level, did things in the state of Florida, became an officer in the state. And then people that were in positions of running the DAV on a national level looked at me and said, hey, you know, if if you'd be interested, we would like to have you become a national officer. So in 1999 was the first time I was elected to national office. You go through the process of fourth junior, third junior, second junior, first junior, senior vice commander. So it's a five-year process to get to become the national commander. But all the while you're doing that, you're traveling around the country, visiting different states and departments, attending their state conventions and sharing your story and bringing the good word of the DAV to all those chapter and department members around the country. So it gives you the foundation to become that national leader at a point in time when the DAV probably really needed to have someone in that position with a visual disability where people could see I was missing two legs and an arm, especially because it was during an era when young men and women were coming home injured from Iraq and Afghanistan, and it gave the DAV that ability to reach out and touch them and bring them into the fold in the DAV as well, too, and let them know that we were there for them that they were not going to be a lost soul out there in the world. So 
I was extremely proud of that time I got to spend in the DAV and perform those duties for the DAV. So when you were a national commander, was there something that you know that you feel like while I was in this position, I'm the one that made this happen and you feel like you really made a difference in some aspect of what the DAV does? I think if there's probably any one thing that really stands out in my mind, and it was my ability to visit Walter Reed and Brook Army Medical Center and to Balboa out in San Diego, California, as national leader of the DAV, and again, have that position of influence and be able to guide that younger generation of, out of the hospital and into uh, back into civilian life and lead a full and enriching life. And a lot of that just happened in that period of time around 2004 through 2006. And also during the time that you were national commander, did you get to meet a president? Um, and I've actually had the opportunity to meet Bill Clinton when he was president, Barack Obama when he was president, and on many occasions, George Bush when he was president. George Bush used to visit Walter Reed a lot, and some visits that were planned and some that were just, we were there the same time he was, we ran into each other there. I also had breakfast with him at the White House one time. Now that's pretty amazing. You met three presidents. I actually got to meet one, and it was Bill Clinton's. We both got to meet that guy. It was because I was stationed in a helicopter unit, HMX-1, which is the president's helicopter squadron. That was the only time that I got to meet a president, but it just sounds like it's no big deal for you. You're like, yep, there's this one and there's that one. (laughs) (laughs) They are people. That's right. So, you know, one of the things that's really great is your ability now, just from people that you've met along your path or through starting at the DAV and your journey there, I love hearing that you're there for other people that have been through maybe something similar, you know, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, but you've been there for the veterans, you've mentored them coming home from the more current wars and they're going through the challenges and here you are helping them along the way. You've been doing that for a long time. I'm sure there are a lot of people that you've helped that are grateful that you've done that. I'm personally also grateful that you've reached out and helped them because it means a lot to me to be able to help other veterans and their families too. I try to help the spouses. We all try to help from our different angles. I know you've made a substantial difference in a lot of people's lives. So so I just really commend you for that. Well, thank you for saying that. And I think one of the things that obviously people did that for me Uh, World War II and Korean vets were members of the DAV in and around the area of Denver, Colorado, when I was hospitalized and did rehabilitation there. So that part I never forget either. I always looked at it as like kind of my responsibility, but something that I truly enjoy doing because if I'm not going to reach out and help someone, I can't worry or depend on somebody else doing it. So at least I try to do my part that I've reached people over my 50 some odd years in the DAV and that we'll continue to do that same thing because the DAV definitely does great work throughout the country. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I personally have been to several of their job fairs that they're part of putting on. And I just know they're there for veterans in many different ways too. And I know one of those ways is when veterans are injured in war, they're there when they wake up, but they're also there when they're out there looking for jobs. So they do a lot more than people probably think that they do. And so I think it's good for us to talk about that and say that, whether it was through the DRV or not, but you have set an example. You basically are out there telling people that, look, I'm doing this. You can do this. You're basically the proof for other people that they can have a happy life. 
well, you know, what the DAV has done for me is just given me a larger platform to do that from. I could do my own thing, maybe in my local community or maybe on the state level. But when they elevated me to a national position, it just gave me a better opportunity to reach more people faster and stronger than I could have ever done by myself. Right. And speaking of platform, exactly what you just said is reaching more people. And that is really our goal with the podcast is to reach out and help more people that may be struggling now. They're in their homes. They're not even wanting to go outside. And now you have a chance to talk to them. So if there are others that have gone through something similar to what you've gone through and they're struggling right now and you can talk directly to them, what advice can you give them right now? Well, you know, and we've kind of touched on some of that a little bit, but to me, Pete, the biggest thing is you just have to kind of pick yourself up, garner up all the energy you can, get out the front door, go do something. And I truly mean this. Some of my trips to the grocery store when I first came back home from Vietnam were some of the most enlightening and challenging things at the same time, but it got me out there to meet the public. So I don't know if you, you know, go to the park for a walk, you go to a local baseball or football game, you go to church, you go to the library, but get out the front door, meet people. It's a great, wonderful world out there. Don't think that people aren't going to accept you. The world is ready to accept everybody that's come back from any of our military services. And I'm just living proof of that. So let's get everybody out the door, get everybody engaged in what's going on in the world. It's a wonderful place to live, and it's a great life outside your front door. That is so well-spoken, Jim. You know, I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on the podcast today and to help others. I mean, you've been doing it for a long time, but, you know, you were helping other people. And I just say that the people that you could possibly help today, I'm grateful for that. And I want to let you know that we appreciate it at American Heroes Network. And I hope to keep in touch and see more great things coming from you in the future. Well, that sounds good. And Pete, once again, I want to say thank you for the invitation for me to be on the podcast today. Thanks for allowing me to be part of it on behalf of the Disabled American Veterans. And I look forward to seeing you. You know, we're only about 70, 75 miles apart. So let's figure out how to get together and talk about this some more. Absolutely. That would be really great to meet you in person. And I hope to do that sometime soon. So we'll be in touch after and I'm looking forward to it, Jim. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening.